The Business of Culture, the culture of business, creatives, media and technology, markets and policy, authors. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. And he was like, I just don't feel like I can get my arms around everything anymore. Like, I'm not able to do as good of a job as I want. And he says that Bill Gross looked at him and said, to think of limits to growth is weak-minded and stupid. I was not tall enough to scoop the ice cream to reach down to the coolers. You know, my parents would put me to work um, at the end of the night, you know, would take all the ice cream out and defrost the coolers and they would pick me up and put me in there with a rag and I'll, you know, dry everything up and, you know, mop the floors. From the entrepreneurial journalist grind to the immigrant kid at his parents' Baskin-Robbins turned restaurant mogul, enjoy another Rewind episode with recent highlights. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. We start with a stretch from our packed live show in the spring at the University of Richmond featuring Planet Money host Mary Childs. She discussed steeping herself in Wall Street and financial arcana to deliver the bestseller, The Bond King. Joining me on stage at the Robbins School at the University of Richmond is Mary Childs, host of NPR's Planet Money. This book, The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All, manages to make a page turner out of the arcane world of fixed income. Would you please give her a hand of applause? I got to ask you, Mary, I come from the equities world, and I I read Liar's Poker just like everybody else, and it was equities in Dallas was made fun of in the 1980s. But, you know, I I think of fixed income, and it's like rice cakes in the grocery aisle. It doesn't excite me, but you are excited by fixed income, and you delineate in the book how many orders of magnitude the credit world is just bigger than, than the stock market. Yeah, it is. And it's also, I mean, people can take issue with this. This is definitely a personal opinion. But, you know, when you have a a fixed income agreement, when you have a bond, there are covenants and companies agree to things and you can take their stuff if they fail to meet those promises. So to me, there's a lot of, you know, rubber meets road in the bond market. And I'm sure I know the stock market is very exciting in and of itself. I'm sure that's true. Um, I just like they go up and down and there's like not that much, I'm sorry, complexity. But no, in fairness, we've been talking about inflation a lot. You might hear it time-stamped everywhere as inflation is at a 40-year high. And I shared this anecdote the other day. It reminds me of, you know, when I was a young American, we came from Iran. My dad took me to a Savings of America Bank in North Miami where they handed us a toaster and a blender and a, a toothsome 15%, you know, CD back in 1982. And that's when the Fed was fighting inflation. We have nothing like that now. And I thought that that game was all gone. The Fed has spent the the last 40 years breaking the back of inflation. And, you know, just by way of explanation, when uh, yields fall, the bond prices go up. The the ones with the higher yields become more dealer. So 
the genius in Bill Gross was that he found that, as you said in other interviews, you don't just have to put these things away in, in drawers and clip the coupons, that you could actually trade them and make a financial empire out of them. That's exactly right. Yeah. When Bill Gross started his uh, first job in 1971, bonds were just, you know, kept in a vault in the basement. And his job was literally just tearing off these little pieces of paper and mailing them in for an interest payment. So he, you know, he and a cohort, you know, you can't trade by yourself. So certainly there were others with him that brought about this revolution. But they basically realized that, you know, inflation was eroding the value of these bonds. Why not sell this bond that you don't like anymore that you you know think is really not going to fare as well and buy a new bond. And then you can keep trading and go after something called price appreciation. The underlying bond moves up and down in price. Right. Less volatile than a stock, obviously. You're getting the coupon income and capital appreciation or depreciation. Yeah, but things, you know, things can happen. So if I'm looking at a bond and I think that, you know, this Campbell's soup bond, nobody knows that Campbell's soup is going bust or whatever. I think I have this insight. I can sell to you. You have a different view. And that is, you know, the foundation of this. This is like very old school, you know, this is what makes a market, but this just hadn't happened in the bond world until Bill Gross and his friends. So what is it about Bill Gross in particular, a psych major at Duke? That's right. Right. Went off and got some graduate work and was a bit of an inveterate gambler. He developed a risk appetite in Vegas in the mid 60s. Talk to us. Yeah, so he um, he actually was in a really bad car accident his senior year of college and ended up in the hospital for a long time. And He lost part of his scalp. He did. His scalp was detached. I'm so sorry for telling you that. Um, and and um, in, while he was in the hospital, you know, he had a lot of free time. So he just started reading this book by Ed Thorpe called Beat the Dealer. And it basically was a strategy for counting cards, for basically learning blackjack and counting, you know, high card, low card, and trying to figure out when you have good odds to bet big and when you should lay off. And then, so he practiced and practiced and practiced and realized that it kind of worked. And then he went to Vegas to try it out for real. And it very much still worked. And he gained this sense of risk, this ability to feel risk. And, you know, for this book, I actually kind of tried to learn to count cards. I can't say that I did learn because it was many years ago and I don't want to be tested on this. But a hedge fund manager taught me in Las Vegas how to count cards. And I think we doubled his money in like a couple hours. And, you know, that was it was not an enormous sum of money, but it works. And it is kind of this feeling of you get to sense when the table's hot and when you should be leaning in and when you should be taking it easy. And that feeling, I think, is very much what Bill could feel in the markets, you know? I don't see how you transubstantiate that. I don't even know if that's the right verb. I just wanted to use it's it. It's really exciting I verb. think I l missed that on the SAT verbal. But anyway, <laughs> I don't see how you port that into the bond market. We didn't even have the junk bond market. Back then, it was what, Treasury... 10, 2, 30-year bellwether bond yeah. before Michael Milken. What what did he see there? I think Bill was, it's actually interesting. His stance was always extremely bearish and that weirdly helped him in the bond. You know, bond investors are notoriously pessimistic, right? You know, they, they want their coupons. They just want to go home at the end of the day. They're not trying to shoot for the moon here. Like stock investors are telling you a story and they're selling you a story and they want to kind of shake you till you get it. Bond investors are just not like that. The, you know, the upside really is more, more limited. And I think, you know, if you look back at the things that Bill Gross has said over the decades, he's been calling the end of this bull market since kind of the beginning. Of the bond bull market. Yes, that's right. So throughout his career, he's like, it's not a good time to be in bonds. Not right now. And like, he's been in bonds the whole time. And indeed, it's been a great time to be in bonds. So that may be finally changing. You know, like you say, this is the first time we've really seen inflation. And that's uh, kind of killer for bonds. But... Mary, it took a while for the equity culture in this country to build. I mean, you had the, the rock star fund manager and Peter Lynch at Fidelity and obviously the late 90s and day traders and whatnot. 
I don't remember how we invested in fixed income. It was before ETFs. I mean, you pretty much would buy bonds directly from the treasury or you'd call a broker to buy you a bond. I don't remember there being total return funds when I was younger. There were. They just weren't as cool. No one talked about them. You know, they I mean, Bill Gross has been doing this or, you know, had been doing this for decades. So it definitely existed. It was just we didn't call them as much and we didn't listen to them on the television as much. And we didn't, you know, there just wasn't the same appreciation because they're just not as fun. People don't like them as much. That's wrong, of course. But what about this vicious rumor that to report this book, which took Mary seven plus years, that you went undercover as a Girl Scout with brownies? Is there any Maybe truth to this? Maybe I shouldn't have this? told this story in the book. Uh, you have to disabuse that I need a straw man. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. So, okay. So when I landed in Southern California, when Bill Gross was shockingly ousted from his own firm, September 2014, I no one was talking to me. No one would answer my calls. And this is kind of normal. People shut down when the big thing happens. But as a reporter, as a beat reporter, you know, my job was to get the story. So I had to go doorstep Bill Gross, which is like, very horrifying, right? You go to the home of someone who has recently been wronged or, you know, at the center of some scandal or some tornado of, of some kind. And so I had to go to his house. And that's like, I don't know, that filled me with great shame. I didn't want to do that to anybody. So I, but I had to do it. So Doesn't I- Doesn't he live in some like 500 acre compound <laughs> near Newport Beach? That's what I always heard that legend. Yes. Um, it's not 500, 500 acres, but it is beautiful and enormous. Citizen Kane or something like, Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I like forgot, I forgot that it was a gated community. But, you know, in my like panic over having to do this. But I had just recently visited a contact in Southern California who had given me a tin of brownies, like homemade delicious brownies. And I was like, okay, I mean, I'm from Virginia. Like I would bring a casserole to someone who just had a bad day, right? Like that's normal. So I gather up my brownies trying to justify this horrifying thing. And I drive up and of course it's gated. So the person at the gate is like, ma'am, can I help you? And I'm like, oh, I was just trying to, is, uh, is Bill Gross in? <laughs> and she's just like, girl, no, like, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that. And I was like, no, 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 that's fair. Can I give him these brownies? And she was like, also hard. No. Like, what are you thinking? She didn't say any of this. She just stared at me. And I was like, no, okay, okay. And I just left, you know, total shame, tail between my legs. And I was like, okay, I did it. I can check that off the list. I can tell my boss I did it. Phew. And I buried the memory and I never thought about it again until somehow years later, some source of mine from PIMCO is like, did you really go to Bill Gross's house dressed as a Girl Scout? And I was like, oh my God, how did, how did that even happen? Why would Such I be a wearing a game of telephone a and here we are talking outfit? about it. Yeah, it's like, but like I already knew Bill, so I don't understand. <laughs> what purpose would it serve to Why? dress up? Yeah, like he's like, Look, I'm shaming shocking. myself. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's flawed, but you know, it's a rumor. So and I did not do that, just to be clear. If there's any confusion, I didn't do it. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the Robin School at the University of Richmond with Mary Childs, Planet Money host. Her new best-selling book is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. I do have to ask you, I've read all those bylines for years because coming out of the financial crisis, which they kind of sort of predicted. They did, yeah. And they almost were quasi-governmental in the help that they gave Treasury and Washington and everyone. Talk about, you know, talking your own book and reaping the rewards of this. They became a $300 billion shop. And I kept wondering to myself, reading your articles, why don't you just close it off to investors? Mm-hmm. Is it going to become unwieldy at this point? I understand that the bond markets are super liquid and everything, but how much is enough? 
What a good question. I mean, there's a, and this was always something that kind of um, chased PIMCO as they grew. They have always been pretty big in the bond market, you know, relative to the overall bond market size and certainly relative to the liquidity in the bond market. And I think, you know, that can be an advantage in fixed income in a way that I think is actually kind of poorly understood, where one of the ways that you can make money in fixed income still today, which is actually rare because, you know, these markets are getting more and more efficient, is in the new issue market. So when a company is bringing a bond to market, they will, you know, typically those bonds are a little bit underpriced so that everybody's happy to buy them. You know, you want to jump in and most new issues pop when they hit the market. And if you're big, like PIMCO, you get the first look. And people are like, oh, is PIMCO going to buy this issue? Like, should I buy this issue? Maybe if PIMCO likes it, maybe I like it. And so they get the anchor position. They get a large allocation of these new bonds. So basically, size can actually be an advantage for a, a firm like PIMCO, especially in fixed income. But you always see hedge fund managers and star mutual fund managers kind of close it off. How many hands do you want to hold? How unwieldy do you want to become? I don't understand. He's now worth something like two and a half, three billion dollars. It's just been this question. Jack Bogle and others have posed that how much is enough? Yeah, when do you stop? Yeah. More money, more problems. So. <laughs> I mean, there's truth to that. There is a, a fund manager who worked at PIMCO in the 90s who is who I love. Like, I think he's very funny. He's throughout the book. And he he told me this story that actually didn't make it into the book, but he says that when he went to Bill Gross to basically retire, he was getting nervous because his fund was too big and he felt like the market had grown, his fund had grown. He had to put the money to work when clients gave him new money to, to invest. And he was like, I just don't feel like I can get my arms around everything anymore. Like I'm not able to do as good of a job as I want. And he says that Bill Gross looked at him and said, to think of limits to growth is weak-minded and stupid. So... <laughs> I mean, there's a bit of a taxing job. Is I meant I profiled uh, Pimco in the new normal, which is what they coined, I think, in 2009 to say, coming out of the financial crisis, we're going to have a, a whole standard of living shift. A bunch of companies are going to be bankrupt. For the large part, for the most part, as a as a kind of an equity call, it was wrong, even mm -hmm. though bonds continued to do well. And just for you guys to picture, Orange County parking lot of a gigantic mall yeah. um, next to Pacific Life with the whale and mm -hmm. you walk into this office park mm -hmm. and you see just a very quiet place. It's not a rambunctious you know, trading floor or anything. And Bill Gross sitting there kind of zen-like with his tie untied, mm -hmm. just ready to go on TV at any point, staring at the monitor. And these guys have to be there at 3.30 or 4 in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there was a lot of emphasis on FaceTime and the office culture was, I think, extremely rigid, really. You know, Bill didn't like eye contact. He didn't like noise. People weren't really supposed to make noise on the phone. So you would call Newport Beach from even the New York office of PIMCO and they would be like, hey, man, hey, I can't I can't really talk right now. You know, it would just be <laughs> this dead silent. And occasionally you, people would put on a little show yelling at their sales coverage on Wall Street trying to get a better deal or whatever. But for the most part, Bill wanted it quiet. So it was quiet. Bill didn't want anyone to make eye contact or bother him or interrupt his focus. So people didn't. Is he in the right line of work? <laughs> then I really wonder because he, at the same time, if you read this book, he's building and building and going into verticals and, you know, they've gone in and out of equities. They've had people trade emerging markets and things, bringing rock stars. There's been a certain bit of a revolving door from the Federal Reserve banks yeah. and people who've gone there. If you're shy and intensely introverted, why surround yourself with people that you end up, was it your impression in this book that he kind of enjoyed the sniping and the cut downs? I think... That's such a good question. I don't think I've actually gotten that one before. I think he doesn't view the sniping and the cutdowns as such. I think he views it as whatever's necessary for client performance. Hmm. And if you're doing something for client performance, it must be okay. You know, like every behavior is forgiven if it's in that umbrella. 
And so I think he was sincerely confused when people were like, you were mean to me in a meeting. And he's like, well, no, I was trying to get the best performance. I was trying to get a good trade. Like, how is that mean? There's nothing. It's just like a speaking a totally different language, I think. So, yeah. And, and, and there's a division of labor that is sort of supposed to happen at a lot of places like PIMCO. You know, PIMCO is not the only one that kind of delineates function where Bill was in charge of investing. Someone else was in charge of managing the clients and those relationships and selling to new clients. And someone else entirely was in charge of, you know, being the executive, guiding the business, you know, making all the kind of choices about the direction of the business. And Bill was supposed to, they called this very early on the, the three-legged stool of PIMCO. And they thought that that gave them balance and stability. And when that changed, they felt like that's like, oh, this is where we went awry. We deviated from that structure when, you know, Muhammad Alarian came in as co-CEO and co-CIO. They kind of mark that. They're never going to do it again, they say. So I think he didn't have the right personality to manage people, but he was never supposed to manage people. What about that try to enter that, you know, stool of power, fame, and money? Ah, yes. So Bill Gross used to ask people when they were applying for a job at PIMCO, which do you want, power, fame, or money? And he liked this as an interview question. PIMCO loved doing really tough interviews, but he liked this one in particular because um, it always revealed a vulnerability and it made people uncomfortable. And so they would be like squirming a little bit and unsure what they should say. And I think most of them typically chose power or money. And Bill's answer was always fame. He was always motivated by the desire to be famous. And that, I think, makes him a particularly rich subject, obviously, for a book because he's generated so much content over many decades. But it does make him, you know, it does motivate him. You can see it motivating him. And, and when a headline tweaks him, he kind of, he can go ballistic. And the kind of a driving force in this book is his relationship with the media and the press and uh, an article that he didn't like kind of helped to catalyze a spiral for him. Mm. Take me back to 2006, 2007. It's amazing if you go back to the Fed Open Market Committee comments of early 2006, it's as if it's oblivious to the asteroid or the impactor that's about to hit the world economy. We do see some softness in the housing market, Bit but of nothing really systemic. I was at Business Week back then, and we were wondering if an emerging market was going to blow up, if there was going to be a currency run somewhere. And meanwhile, it was happening right here. Talk to me about the shoe leather research that Bill Gross's minions did to find out that, you know, what his theory might be validated here. Yeah. So he and his mortgage team, you know, the team covering the mortgage market, investing in mortgage-backed securities, they already had a bit of a sense that things were overheating and that there would come a point, you know, that people would no longer be able to sell to the next person and that the people holding the mortgages would no longer be able to make their payments. You know, that's a reality that happens, right? So they see this kind of coming, but Bill Gross is like, no, you know what we need? We need to go out into the world. We can't just look at our Bloomberg terminals and our little reports that come in from wherever. We need to go see it with our own eyes. So he sends them out into the world. And there's this interesting thing where the narrative became, the story became that he sent them out to pose as interested home buyers to pretend that they were going to buy homes and they would go on tours with mortgage brokers. And, you know, the brokers would be like, oh, look at this house. And they would be like, oh, I really like it. I might buy it. But the the thing that interested me, this was actually a scoop by my fact checker, where they never actually pretended to be home buyers. Bill Gross kind of seems to have gotten it stuck in his head that that's how it happened. And then it became part of the PIMCO brand that they'd done this like subterfuge thing. Anyway, so they went out into the world and they did find, they, you know, made relationships, got to know all these different people that, you know, were brokers and bankers and, um, you know, figures in the local mortgage areas. And they did get access to more data than, you know, their competitors were getting. 
But they had this early look and and robust look at the mortgage market and said, yeah, this is just not sustainable in any way. You are listening to some of my live interview from the U of R with Planet Money's Mary Childs. Catch the entire episode. It's called Broken Income, wherever you get your pods. I recently spoke with PBS NewsHour anchor Jeff Bennett about his decade-long metamorphosis from cub reporter to public radio producer to regional cable TV greenhorn to nationally renowned Washington correspondent. Take a listen. Welcome back to the show, good sir. Jeff Bennett, anchor of PBS News Weekend. He's chief Washington correspondent for PBS NewsHour, previously at NBC News, previously a congressional and White House correspondent at NPR, prior to that at, at Time Warner Cable, New York one, and uh, produced me at NPR's Weekend Edition back in the day, less than a decade ago. How are you, sir? Yeah, I'm doing great. How are you? It's great to be back with you, Robin. Thank you, Jeff. I want to tell that story because I remember um, it was at some point, I think, in the spring of 2013. You were wonderful to work with at Weekend Edition. You actually held my hand, introduced me to people like Michelle Martin back in the day with Tell Me More and and other programs. And you told me that, look, this will be the last time I'm working with you here because I'm going off to pursue my dream of becoming a, a TV correspondent. And uh I was pulling for you, and I remember New York One at Time Order Cable, but how did that all start, and how did your career start? I mean, take me back to Morehouse. Yeah, well, interestingly enough, at, at Morehouse, there was no journalism program, so I majored in English, and I worked on the school newspaper to get as much practical experience as I possibly could, the Maroon Tiger. And my senior year, I was editor-in-chief of the paper. And I also had a number of really great internships. So at school, I was a member of the National Association of Black Journalists. And someone working in the talent development team at ABC News at the time named Nisa Walton Booker, she was a recent Spelman graduate. And so, you know, I had gone to NABJ, which is this huge convention, and it's filled with these booths. And all of the major news outlets show up, and they send, you know, one or two representatives. And then what you see are all of these young journalists with their resumes freshly printed, going from booth to booth, trying to find the best fit. And I grew up outside of Philadelphia, uh, in South Jersey, Voorhees, New Jersey. And the reason I mention that is because even to this day, Philadelphia is one of the strongest news markets in the country. And so, you know, as a kid, the way that I knew it was time for lunch was because Lisa Thomas-Laurie would come on at noon on, (laughs) on Channel 6, action news. And so I grew up watching ABC. I grew up watching Peter Jennings. And, you know, fast forward to this job convention, I went to the ABC booth and was hoping that I would get an internship. And it all worked out. Got an internship. Uh, the first summer I worked for Carol Simpson's show. Um, she was a, was a or Carol Simpson, of course, is the first black woman to ever anchor a network news broadcast. And so she took me under her wing the following Year after I graduated, I got a full-time job working on that show and ultimately found my way to ABC News, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings as a desk assistant, which basically is a glorified way of saying copy boy. <laughs> so desk assistants really are the, are the lifeblood of any news organization. They are the folks who print the scripts, who um, answer the phones, who, who, yes, will often get and deliver coffee, but it is the best way to fully understand how a news organization works. You are at the sort of the ground floor. And I did that for for a number of years, for about three or four years, uh, and and left as an associate producer. And so I feel like in many ways, the experience I got at ABC, learning from Carol Simpson, who to this day is very much a mentor of mine, watching Peter Jennings at work, 
um, seeing him edit, copy it in real time, you know, change scripts to either be in his own voice or to better capture the news of the day. I think, you know, that was invaluable. And just being at a place and at a network that really valued news coverage as a public service and less so as a business enterprise, I think really uh, was invaluable. Were you hankering to become talent or how would you even get a shot? Uh, they didn't have streaming channels back then. Online wasn't nearly as developed. There wasn't a kind of a skunk works to show yourself on digital. Right. And, and it's a great point that you make because back then everything was very much siloed. So if you were a producer, you were on the producer track. If you wanted to be an editor, you were on the editor track. If you were on the talent track, that was the track that you were on. And back then, and when I say back then, this is the early aughts, you know, if you wanted to be a network correspondent, the way to do it was to go to a local market and work your way up. And even producers who wanted to be on air, right, I mean, right. it was verboten that you would ever say that <laughs> if you were head of network. So what I chose to do, even at the time I knew that I wanted to, to do reporting, it was less so about being on air. It was more about wanting to do reporting and, and actually practice the craft of, of journalism. I wasn't entirely sure how to go about doing it. I knew that I didn't want to move to a small market, having lived in New York by that point for about five or six years. The idea that I was going to uproot all of that and, and move out to, you know, the sticks of some small town and sort of work my way up and hope that someone somewhere um, saw what I was capable of doing, that just didn't seem like the right path for me. And so instead, what I did was I took a different job at AOL. AOL television. And so for a year, oh, wow. <laughs> for a year, I was an entertainment reporter. And the reason I mention this is, is, is for young journalists who may not know exactly what they want to do. They don't really understand how to, how to go about doing it, how to carve a path for themselves. I would say, especially in the beginning of your career, take any opportunity that is available to you that one is pays. Like I wouldn't, for, for, for young journalists in particular, I, I don't advise ever taking unpaid internships. <laughs> But take any opportunity that is available to you that sort of expands your horizons. And so that's what I did. I, I did a year of entertainment reporting, hated it, but at least I knew that I hated it. And then from there, um, course corrected and found my way back to national politics. So were you able to get, I mean, even in the infancy of AOL at this point was being spit out. The whole Time Warner merger was a disaster. It had so much promise because it was technically a cousin of CNN and you could get it in all these other magazine properties, Fortune and the like, but they were intensely siloed if you thought, you know, Cap City's ABC Disney was. Did this get you any on-air opportunities or did you try your hand at radio or, I mean, back in the day, we didn't have webcams or anything else or iPhones. You'd have to go out with a whole crew. Yeah, but no, but what it did was it gave me opportunities to interview a lot of people and a lot of celebrities and to sort of hone that the interviewing skills that I hadn't really had a chance to do previously. And, and the reason I say, you know, I didn't I didn't enjoy the work was it had nothing to do with the, the, my colleagues or or the employer. It was I knew that I as I'm, you know, interviewing Vanessa Williams about Ugly Betty or Dennis Haysbert about 24. That was the big show that was on at the time. Yeah. I was only really vaguely interested in their answers. <laughs> and that was, it had nothing to do with them. It was just more that, you know, that wasn't what I felt called to do. Entertainment reporting wasn't really what I thought was the best use of my skills. I, I'd always really been most interested in, in politics. Um, but, but at the time that I'd left ABC, I didn't really see a, a path for forward movement. And by the time I left ABC, I was also doing digital producing for World News Tonight. 
Um, I was part of the founding team that launched what is now ABC News Live. And to give you a sense of the early days of that, um, our team couldn't get the chroma keying right. So our anchor at the time, God bless her, had this green halo around her oh. head all the time <laughs> because it was so early days of, I guess it wouldn't even be streaming at that point, but it was early days of news content available whenever you'd want it on demand online. Um, but at the time, I just couldn't chart a path forward. And that's why I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to stay in this digital space, um, AOL is, at the time was the best of brand. And, you know, they had opportunities to, to do more, at least reporting. I wouldn't necessarily call it journalism, but certainly more reporting. And, that, and that's why I took that leap. Jeff, this reminds me of a bit of sink or swim. Uh, during business school, I took a fellowship and internship at the New York Times. And while it was great to kind of be in the belly of the beast and go chasing jurors, I think in the Enron trial and everything else with Andrew Ross Sorkin, it was on balance for me an alienating and unpleasant experience because uh, you, you realized uh, after about a few days that it was sink or swim. They wanted to see how maybe Machiavellian and resourceful you could be at enterprise reporting, at fact checking, at juggling all these things. One of the dilemmas for the young, ambitious journalist in a major market is how do you do the, you know, fact checking and the reporting and the coffee getting and everything and get the time to to shine yourself for the big enterprise pieces. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a really good question and I think that is the toughest thing about being a young producer is one doing the work that is required of you which can sometimes feel like you're doing you're you're just spinning your gears and all of this work of is course, sort of going into the ether or you're doing great work and someone else is getting the credit for it that in many ways is sort of the <laughs> That's what one does as a producer. But yeah, it really is difficult to to stake your claim and get out there. I will tell you, um, I was at ABC during um, one of the blackouts. I think it, it was would have been the blackout of August of 2003. I was there. Yeah. 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 I'll never forget it because I walked from 66th Street in Manhattan to my house at the time, uh, walk up in a brownstone in Clinton, Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. So that <laughs> that was a, That's a, long a four walk. or five hour walk. I'll never forget. But we knew that there were people, there were there were subway cars that were stuck, stuck underground, yeah. and the assignment desk wanted people to basically go into the subway tunnels and find these <laughs> find these stuck passengers and put a camera on them. And so there were opportunities like that where you could raise your hand and say, "I'll do it," or uh, if you wanted to have, and I'm not exaggerating here, have cash strapped to your body and then be flown to Cuba to pay the stringers <laughs> who at the time were in Cuba and couldn't get paid through uh, traditional banking systems. There were opportunities like that to, to show your medal. <laughs> I never, I never signed up for that, but that's, that's kind of how it was back then. It was, it was, it was, it comparison to now was freewheeling. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Jeff Bennett. He is, of course, anchor of PBS News Weekend. You've seen him host NBC News, MSNBC. He's the chief Washington correspondent, additionally, for PBS NewsHour. Jeff, so what happened after AOL? Did did uh, NPR make the pitch to you? Yes, in fact. Uh, one of my friends, uh, who was Betsy Stark's producer for the business unit at ABC, uh, while I was at AOL, she had gone to NPR and was executive producing a show out there, a news and public affairs show called News and Notes with Farai Chidea. Oh, yes. And yeah, it was based out of Los Angeles. And this, for me, was my chance to go live in L.A., which imagine being, you know, mid to late 20s, having lived in New York and then taking a job in L.A. It was it was 
It was great. But the thing about that staff, and I was on that show for, uh, I had to say, about two or three years before uh, the economy collapsed. It was the Great Recession and NPR um, basically shuttered NPR West and then uh, canceled all of the shows that emanated from that bureau apart from uh, the staff that was there for, for Morning Edition and All Things Considered. Um, but the two or three years I was with that program, I think, were really affirming in that, you know, it was a young staff. It was a brand new show. And it was one of the few situations in which you could look at a broadcast, look at our rundown each day. And that rundown would be reflective of the staff behind it. That doesn't always wow. happen. Sure. But the staff was young. It was diverse. And I think the, one of the greatest points of pride in that show was that we brought our full selves to work and all of that showed up in the broadcast. Um, and, you know, Farai is a brilliant mind and was a great, a great host to work for. Learned a lot from her. Now, you got a chance to be talent, of course. Talent used, I think, by agents, by TV producers, by, you know, in the, in the, in the parlance of ABC and Cap Cities that you weren't just behind the scenes now. You got a chance to get a mixer and actually record and report. Yeah, that's right. And and to get and to get used to hearing my own voice, my own broadcast voice on the radio, um, to get a sense of how to write sort of in my own style as opposed to writing for someone else. Because until up until that point, that's pretty much all I had ever done was learning how to adjust good broadcast writing for the host or anchor that I was producing for. Um, and that got me closer to the reporting that I'd always wanted to do. So by this point, I was, I don't know, I'd say eight to 10 years in my career. Still wasn't doing reporting under my own byline, but was getting closer and closer to it. Now, I want to take you on a little bit of a tangent here, a little bit of a detour. We look at NPR, and it's had many reckonings, all of media, all of media with Me Too um, in the wake of George Floyd, everything that happened in, uh, in 2020 and 2021. And now we're talking about the Great Resignation. You fast forward, NPR had some great advances. Of course, it dropped the show Tell Me More, which I loved, and I was a regular on, and I remember crossing paths with you uh, in the NPR mothership when I was doing that. But the brain drain of people of color, whether you look at Sam Sanders or you look at Audie Cornish or uh, uh, Lulu Garcia Navarro, the people that have left, I believe NPR likes to say that it's a function of their excellence, their primacy, and the fact that for-profit news outlets have a lot of money to poach. But I, I can't get over the fact that it just lost this huge brain trust of great voices of color who had quite a following. And because you mentioned Farai Chidea and how, you know, I, I think you go back and you read the coverage of WNYC's troubles and how she was done wrong or Adoro Doji, and that's kind of still ongoing. And I, I mean, I, I know we're going to get back to your experience at NPR where you were recruited to come back and be a reporter, but what is going on? Yeah, I will say I had a very different experience than did some of my colleagues of color working at NPR. I think NPR is an incredible incubator of talent across the board. It has not been as good at retaining talent. And that's certainly true of talent of color. There are people who say that the, that the, the culture of the place, even as they say that they want to be forward leaning and progressive, I don't mean progressive in a political sense, but um, uh, progressive and in inclusive, that the, the culture is still very much passive aggressive to a large degree. And there are people who don't thrive in, in, in those environments. And when other opportunities are made available, and oftentimes they're better paying opportunities, pe people jump at those opportunities. And that has been true 
of, of young talent. It's been true of diverse talent. NPR says that they are, are trying to be better about this. But I will tell you, Robin, I started working at NPR in, I'd say, 2006. And there have been, I've lost count of the number of diversity initiatives that they've had over the years, all of which I think are well-intentioned, not necessarily well-executed, but this has been something that they have been focusing on and talking a lot about. And I've worked at a number of, of, of news organizations by now, none of which has has focused as much on this diversity issue as NPR has. And the, the fact that they haven't been able to get it right, and that's not me saying that. I think a, a lot of NPR executives would say that they have more work to do. Of course, every news organization has more work to do. But the fact that they haven't been able to address this issue in, in a way that has been, I think, meaningful, it raises a lot of questions. Full disclosure, stay with us. You were listening to some of my recent interview with Jeff Bennett of PBS NewsHour. You can catch the entire broadcast wherever you get your pods. We close out this episode of Full Disclosure Rewind with my summer chat with Virginia restaurant mogul Chris Sway of Eat Restaurant Partners. This is a Taiwanese immigrant who got his start as a pint-sized freezer cleaner at his parents' Baskin Robbins. Joining me in Henrico, Virginia, in Central Virginia, is Chris Sway, the founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners. This is a concept in Richmond, Virginia, that now has, what, 12, 13 restaurants and concepts. Uh, he started off as a young boy at his father's Baskin-Robbins as an immigrant and parlayed that into experience as a busboy and some investment capital. And then the next thing you know is he's opening up restaurants left and right, including Osaka, Fat Dragon, Wild Ginger... Boulevard Burgers and Brew, if you've been here in Scott's edition. How are you, sir? Great. Thank you for having me, Robin. You know, it's so whiplashing that as you were writing on the note card all the concepts that you had, you kind of forgot how many concepts you have. And that's where I try to timestamp it for myself. I met you at Osaka a decade ago, and you have, I mean, you've grown, you've you've rocket shipped from that. Yeah, it's uh, been a great journey. Hopefully it continues. Um, been fortunate. Uh, you know, having great people around me, you know, definitely helps. Take me back. You came here from Taiwan as a four-year-old. Correct. To so, the United States. When was that? Oh, gosh. Uh, the year was, let's see, <laughs> 1972 when I landed in Boston and uh, stayed there for about two years. Then my parents bought a Baskin-Robbins franchise in Richmond. So that's how we ended up in Richmond. Hmm. And so the idea was uh, to, to run this kind of as a family business, because all these Richmonders seem to have this legend of Chris Sway, the restaurant <laughs> mogul. I used to see him as a young kid after Little League games and everything. Is that that Chris Sway? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I you know worked in the Baskin-Robbins, scooping ice cream. Um, you weren't even tall enough to scoop the ice cream, apparently. No, no. I, when I was not tall enough to scoop the ice cream to reach down to the coolers, you know, my parents would put me to work um, at the end of the nights, you know, would take all the ice cream out and defrost the coolers and they would pick me up and put me in there <laughs> with a rag and I'll, you know, dry everything up and, you know, mop the floors. But yeah. And you were paid in ice cream? That's right. <laughs> you know, tried every flavor there was. So as a, from an immigrant to another immigrant, I mean, my parents always pressed school on me. And uh, yes, I had a job in, in uh, uh, high school and whatnot, but I had to keep my eyes on my grades. How did you juggle the two? Oh, gosh. Um... School was definitely very important for my parents. You know, they wanted me to get good grades. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I was probably average um, grades. Juggling everything, it, w it wasn't that bad. I mean, my parents definitely gave me the time to do my homework, everything. And, and once I finished, you know, then they would take me to work, usually on the weekends and always during the summertime. 
All right. So you were there for much of your childhood, but you were also uh, were at Peking on Grove, which now through several evolutions is your Beijing, this slamming Chinese restaurant by the University of Richmond in Tuckahoe. Uh, that started off with you as a busboy with uh, the legendary Dick Du. I understand. Yes. Talk to me about that. And this used to be a grocery store, I think, in the 1950s. That's right, yeah. It was a Safeway or something. Yep, exactly. Um, it, we still have the original terrazzo floors in there. The original floor, wow. Yeah, the original floors are still wow. there. Um, it, was a, it was a cool story about how we built that restaurant up, um, actually, after I took it over. But yes, my father, <clears throat> selling the Baskin-Robbins, got involved with the Peking restaurants. Um, he bought out uh, Michael Kuo, who was Dick Du's partner at that time. And got out the ice cream business and got into restaurant business. So that's how I got started in the restaurant business. What's interesting is that the immigrant is able to parlay ambition and sweat equity into actual equity. And so you throw, I guess, what, much of the 1970s into the Baskin Robbins in the early 1980s. And it was in a position where he could sell it for a premium and then take the money. And somebody wanted to sell out of a business two miles, three miles south of them. Like, do you remember any of that of that conversation or that that must have been huge for the family to buy a steak in a thriving Chinese restaurant? Yeah, it was definitely a, I, I say, a bold move for my for my father. Um, the ice cream store was doing well. Baskin Robbins was doing well. And at that time, again, Michael Cole, you know, was looking for a buyer and knew my, knew my dad. So they came up with a deal for it. But it was definitely a big move for my, for my dad. You know, all the money that we've made he made at the ice cream store, you know, put into the, into the restaurant and, you know, and just, you know, working hard. He was work. He worked seven days a week, seven days a week. Oh yes. As a family business. Correct. And so you were there. Did you have any siblings? I had one sister, an older sister. We both worked in the restaurant. So once my dad got involved in the Peking, you know, my first job was dishwashing and then busboy, and waited tables. Um, so yeah, it was a great experience. I loved it. My but favorite. You just, really, you just threw yourself into that filling tea, waiting tables, doing all of this oh, as yeah. a teenager. That's right. Yeah, but that was, I always tell people that my favorite job was being a busboy at the Peking back in the days. <laughs> back in the day, and uh, Richmond was a very different beast back then. It wasn't even common to find a Chinese restaurant or an Indian restaurant. Nothing versus what you see in the year twenty twenty two with you know, Afghan, Bosnian, Korean. You know that it's just exploded over the last decade. Oh yes, yeah. It's a, Richmond's just been, you know, it's a great market. I mean, new things coming. Seems like you starting to see some people opening restaurants again a little bit, but more so during the pre-pandemic. You know, you're you're getting all these different cool cuisines coming in. Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Chris Sway. He's the founder and president of Eat Restaurant Partners, which is roughly plus or minus twenty years old. Now, um, it, it took on an official name, I guess, during the Great Recession. But here's the interesting backstory is when I first moved to Richmond, they give you this kind of culinary bucket list thing to do, the, the five or six or seven things you must absolutely eat. You know, Mrs. Yoder's donuts, and uh, increasingly it's kind of gelati, celesti, this. And always uh, Osaka, which is by the University of Richmond, your sushi and steak concept, the blue oyster cult roll, the famous kind of oyster and filet mignon and everything. And I was told that you have to wink at the staff. It was like a secret menu. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, everybody's like, you must try the blue oyster cult roll. And I met you there and uh, we struck up a friendship. You invited me to a charity dinner. Uh, you and I worked together on various charity dinners. And since that time, I guess in the year 2011 or 2012, you just relentlessly expanded into so many different concepts. You bought 
an old derelict used car dealership in Scott's Edition and restored it to its original kind of status as a uh, you know Kelly's Jet Burger in the 1950s and 1960s. It's now Boulevard Burgers and Brew. I challenge anyone, if you come to Richmond and you blindfold them and you take them to Boulevard Burgers, they wouldn't know what city they're in. It's a little bit of Vegas. It's a little bit of, obviously, with Wild Ginger, your Southside uh, restaurant is, is slammed. You guys have gone into... Uh, Pan-Asian Mexican tacos, you've gone into fried chicken, barbecue. I mean, I lost track uh, to say nothing of, you know, the famous beer sommelier at, at uh, Fat Dragon. It's quite uh, a restaurant empire now. What, 13 concepts? Uh, that's right, yeah. 13, uh, 13 restaurants, 12 concepts, yeah. What goes in your... So now knowing the full longitudinal, you know, you worked in a Baskin-Robbins as an elementary school kid, you bus tables as a teenager... The, uh, this gets into some inside baseball, but the cost of capital, the potential for capital, what compels you to open up another restaurant? Is it investors coming up to you and saying, Chris, we need more investing inventory? Is it you being really excited by a concept, a demography, studying the neighborhood? Probably a little bit of everything. Um, you know, one thing that sticks out in my mind was when we were looking to do our second Osaka sushi, which is the one at the River Road area that you were talking about. I remember going to the bank wanting to borrow money to open it. You know, the bank, you know, I understand every bank, you know, you need the collateral for it. So they they said, you know, well, if, if you want this amount, you have to have that amount in collateral. And then I thought to myself, well, if I have the money already, then why do I want to borrow money from the bank? So I decided not to borrow money from a bank, so I used my own capital to open up Osaka at River Road. What, your own capital, like retained earnings from the Osaka? How does that work? And let's de-jargonize it for our listeners. We have a public radio listenership. I mean, money that you have, it could be put in a treasury, it could be put in a savings account. Why was it so compelling to put it into a restaurant? Well, so having been my dad's restaurants and having one prior restaurant myself, just knowing the returns, how much money potentially you could make, having the money, so saving the money up. So for me, it was where putting, leaving the money in the bank, you know, what can you do with it? You can put it in the stock market, you could um, maybe buy treasury CDs, but I had, I thought that, you know, I had confidence myself where I thought I could make a better return than putting the money into the stock market or, you know, a CD or, or another vehicle. So that was my thought process was, you know, if the first restaurant, you know, I made, you know, X amount, um, what am I going to do with it? And I've always, you know, believed, you know, you try to make your money work for you. So so I decided to to use that money to open a second restaurant because I knew the business. What do I know? Uh, you know, I, could, I probably could open an ice cream store, but, you know, I'm in the restaurant business. I know the restaurant business, so I felt comfortable with it. I felt confident enough where I could do a better return than putting the money somewhere else. Mm. And how did you make the tough decision to close the Osaka in short pump? I mean, this is a, you know, fisher cut bait, as they say, yeah. right? In the Great Recession, restaurants right. were closing left and right. Capital had dried up. Um, maybe you thought that the, the the money and the capital and everything and the equipment being used there was better used elsewhere. Yes, it, it did. We, we ended up selling the business during the Great Recession, um, financial crisis. The decision came when you know, we, you know, we made calls to the landlord. They were unflexible about lowering our rent. Um, and then during a, a period of time where we were actually losing money every month. So to keep it open, you know, it, it costed capital, costed, you know, money out of my own pocket. Um, 
so we decided to go ahead and sell it to an, an existing employee there. Um, she bought it, so it's kind of you know a load off my shoulders, if you will. You know, and then having the second Osaka at the River Road Shopping Center, you know, that location held up much better than the one in Short Pump. It's in an upscale area. Correct. It's near the Country Club of Virginia. It's near the University of Richmond. There, they they sell quite a bit of liquor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it definitely held up better. You know, it's um, you know, yes, I think there was the demographics there are great. Um, you know. Income to support, you know, financial crisis. So I think I think that helped. So up. what happened around this that then suddenly you start hearing about wild ginger and fat dragon and everything coming out of this financial crisis? There was so much cash flow being thrown off of the restaurants that you started going into turbo mode and opening. I don't understand. Like something happened in that haze that I went from knowing you of Osaka and and wild ginger to there being ten restaurants. Yeah. It was interesting, you know. You know, again, I, th- I think we're we were fortunate to have that Rivero location. It, it was, you know, during the you know again during that uh, recession, I think it held up pretty well. Um, you know, the sales dipped a little bit, but nowhere near what it did in Short Pump. Um, we were still making money. The Wild Ginger one, actually, we opened that up in two thousand and nine. Still r- during the crisis. Um, the ball was rolled on that already. You know, loved the site, signed the lease, so we were committed. We opened that up. I, I want to say it was May two thousand and nine. Mm. So we were still, you know, just probably bottoming out during the recession. Right. And um, and people forget how calamitous it was. You had banks failing left and right. I remember in that period specifically, the stock market had hit a. 15-year low of sorts, and uh, there was worry that Citigroup was going to fail, that the government was bailing out AIG. Very little visibility, very little access to capital. I mean, you had to have uh, uh, tremendous risk tolerance to open up a restaurant in the haze of the great financial crisis. Yes, it was definitely a risk. Um, I I, want to say calculated risk, you know, even though, yes, I think we were committed to open up something at that location, knowing what we did or you know the financials at the Osaka at River Road, and knowing the demographics around the Wild Ginger area again, it's it's a it's a. Um, a you high did study end. demographics quite a bit to see how replicable was the experience with the Osaka to the Wild Ginger. Correct. Yes, it was. Um, you know, again, a high income, uh, high net worth area, um, very dense residential. Um, so you know, we, we we took the plunge. You know, again, you know, it was no money from the banks. Um, and it turned out well, you know. From I remember the first month, it was it was okay. We we you know it was it was good. And then every month, it just got better and better and better. And then when we came out of the financial crisis, it just took off. Full disclosure: enjoy all these interviews in their entirety on NPR, Spotify, and of course Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Wherever you get your pods, please subscribe, rate, and recommend us. Special thanks to my producer Claire Morgan at Notterly. You can catch me weekly on both MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week.